I am Peter, a compulsive overeater. I'd like to thank Jack for asking you to speak, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> and so much in my mind today, uh, especially after the birthday party and hearing so many great speakers uh, last week, really made me think about the program and my recovery in the program. So, a lot of you have heard my story. Uh, a lot of you haven't. Um, so I'll start with the basics, and uh, and then whatever we I don't seem to get to, we can talk to in the Q and A. So essentially, uh, here I am today. I'm 55 years old. Uh, on the outside, it's very normal. I've been with the same company for 26 years. I'll be married 25 years later this year. I've got two kids. Stability, stability, stability. Um, and I've been in OA for 36 years. Um, I've been absent this time 14 years. Uh, I had 14 years of abstinence. I never thought I would leave OA. This was it. I couldn't imagine going through, not going to meetings, not being involved. But slowly I began to drift away and losing my abstinence. Um, very gradually. And then I kind of drifted off not going to meetings because I felt that the program wasn't working. And what was happening was I wasn't talking to people in, uh, in the meetings. I wasn't calling someone. I didn't have a sponsor. And um, a couple people, some sponsees of mine, I had sponsees, uh, but yeah, they'd say, is everything okay? Are you, are you sure you don't want to come to meetings? Uh, you know, I had a sponsor who was coming out here for, I guess it was World Service, something... Uh, he lived in Philadelphia. I sponsored him in Philly. Uh, and he, I could tell by the way he was reacting that he just was like, okay, this is not a good situation. And, uh, you know, he sort of peppers some quiet. Do you want to come with me? Or, and I was like, no. Nah. And I really just was going to find out if I could eat sugar. That's what it came down to. Uh, 70 pounds later, I discovered I could eat sugar. Uh, and uh, the results were not great. Uh, uh, talk about an obsession. You know, I came in, today I'm 191 pounds. I started coming to the program when I was 18 years old. I had just lost a bunch of weight. And this idea that if I got down to the right weight, my, my life would be fantastic. Uh, my grades would be better. My dating life would be better. I'd feel better about myself. Somehow more money would magically appear in the bank. Um, so what was that number? So today I'm 191, middle age. Yeah, I, I got down to 170. That was not the number. I got down to 160. That was not the number. I got down to 150. Nothing changed. So that wasn't the number. So I got down to about 146 pounds. That was not the number. <laughs> and I was getting worried. I was getting real worried because my life was not getting any better. But I was thin. It's supposed to be better. And someone had talked to me, a family member, my father said, you know what your problem is? You're a compulsive overeater and you need OA. So that was my introduction to OA. <laughs> so I didn't talk to him for about six months. This was uh, the December before. Uh, and went to my first meeting in a July 4th weekend, 1983. As it turns out, the birthday party, Frank, uh, who's now in New York, used to be here. We came in on the same weekend, 1983. He came in in Los Angeles, I came in in D.C. And we're both still here, which is amazing. 
And, um, you know, it was a really depressing meeting. It was a newcomer's meeting, and, you know, I just... I, 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 it was horrible, you know. Uh, and I went back, I don't know why I went back to another meeting during the week, and in that meeting they talked about what food did for them, their emotions, their feelings. I, at 18, did not have an emotional vocabulary. I could not put words to how I was feeling about things, but I recognized it as soon as I heard it. And I'd never heard this anywhere else. And so I was like, okay, this is the place. This is the spot. And I started coming to meetings weekly. I did not get accident. I was not ready. I was in a little town in Charlottesville, Virginia, going to school. There were like five people in the, in, in, in the meetings. Uh, I would not say OA was strong there. Hopefully it is today. There was someone who came down and had like a year of accidents when we were just stunned. And she became my sponsor and food sponsor for about two weeks. And uh, she just fired me because I'm like, oh, I can't have pie? Oh, that cake has sugar? Okay. Oh, wow. All right. You're strict. You know, I just, she's like, you're not ready. And I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to give it up. And then she said, well, you know, I'm an AA. And so all my sponsees have to have the same food plan my, I have and work a program the way I have because I can only share what I do and I don't drink so none of my sponsees can drink. I thought, well, singleness of purpose, this is over. Thank you. Uh, one, two, I'm in college. You're, you're taking away the food. You're not taking the booze. Come on, I'm in college. So I just didn't share when I drank didn't put that on the food plan. I didn't, you know, writing everything in. I, is this everything you ate? Yep. She didn't ask, was it everything I drank? So, not being honest kept me from getting abstinent. And literally, I did not get abstinent until I stopped drinking. That's, literally, that's when it happened. Uh, so, I graduate. I literally stopped drinking on my last day of college. I decided I'm moving to France. It sounded good, and so I did. I don't speak French, and so it was a fun experience. Uh, you know, I have a feeling, and this is my belief, when you come in, it's time to come in. When you're ready, you're ready. You're either supposed to be here or you're not supposed to be here. It's that simple. And for a while, I beat myself up. Later on in recovery, gee, how come I didn't get abstinence sooner? How come I didn't get a sponsor sooner? How come I didn't work on the steps sooner? Because then I'd be this much further ahead in my life. And the reality of it was, is I was, I, I was in Paris. It was July 4th weekend again. I went to an English-speaking AA meeting. And at the end of the meeting, I raised my hand. And I'm like, hey, I'm Peter, Charlottesville, Virginia, alcoholic. I need to talk to someone after the meeting because I had not been to a meeting in a month. I was going to drink. I was going to binge. I was like, and there was a guy who was like, hey, let's talk after the meeting. That guy read my first, fifth step, uh, fourth step to He was from Charlottesville, Virginia. What a coincidence. And right after I said, you know, I was going to meet this guy after the meeting, a woman came up to me and she goes, are you in OA? I'm like every good paranoid compulsive overeater I thought how did she know I go yeah why she goes well we have an English speaking meeting starting downstairs in about 30 minutes why don't you come down and so I did and I started going to OA meetings in Paris and stayed there for two years and that's where I found my abstinence thank God that woman came up to me and asked that question 
and, and so I was supposed to be there. It was very clear I was supposed to be there. I was supposed to be in OA, in AA, in Paris, and that's what happened. And, you know, I think a lot about it today is when things start to happen. Is this supposed to be happening to me? Why is this happening? How come, you know, I, uh, I'm at this weight and I can't get to this? And, and a lot of it, in my first sponsor, and he went out. Uh, but he said to me, he says, if you want to know God's will, open your eyes. What's happening right now is exactly what's supposed to be happening. Good or bad, and your job is to accept it. And so I think about that today. You know, where am I? How come I'm not here? Or what about this? How come this is happening in the world? And to me, those are the wrong questions. To me, today, for me, if I'm going to be a piece of what's going on in the world, I have to stop and think and go, okay, am I taking care of myself? Am I centered? Am I in a position to be of service to myself and to everybody else? Let the world take care of itself and still be an active participant. And, and so I realized I was asking the wrong questions. There's a lot of ground to cover for 36 years in OA. Um, I'd say the most important thing is um, I went a long time without a sponsor. Uh, when I left Paris, I had a sponsor in Paris. When I left Paris, uh, I moved around and just never could quite find that sponsor. You know, the problem is I was looking for someone like me. There's no one like me in OA. I was 18, I was thin, I was straight. Very few people like that in the world, especially in 1984, 1985, in that time frame, especially in France. But even in Washington, D.C., where I moved to next. And I was always looking for that. And I actually found that person in A. This is the guy, you know, he's got great life, he's got great girlfriend, he's got great car, he's got great apartment, he's got great sobriety, this guy's going to be my sponsor, and he became my sponsor. He had to go back to the United States, so all of a sudden I'm living in his apartment, I'm driving his car, his girlfriend's very friendly with me, and I'm thinking, oh wow, I got his life, you know, and I was just as unhappy, and it was a great lesson for me. You know, they say, go after what, you know... They have what I want. He had everything I wanted. Then, of course, you know, he was arrested by the FBI. So that was a whole other story. <laughs> and, but I looked at that, and then I had everything he had, the trappings. And I was totally unhappy. And I couldn't figure that out. Because it wasn't the stuff on the inside. It was the stuff on the inside. You know, it was everything in here, not all the trappings. And in a way, I would look around to find that person. And, and what I had to realize is I have to look for the message. It's the message that keeps me coming back. It's the identification that, yeah, I still have this disease. Here I am today. Why am I here? I have to be here. Because that session doesn't go away. It's still there. If given the chance, you know, if I go out on my binge foods, it took me seven years to get back. And I did not want to come back. I tried everything. And, you know, I had some health issues. I'd see a cardiologist when I was in my early 30s. And, you know, my father died of a heart attack quite young, and I had the same stuff. And, you know, he's like, look, you got to lose 70 pounds now. 
uh, start running marathons. You're running the LA Marathon next year. Uh, you got to get in shape. You got to train like an Olympian. And that, other than that, you're, you're going to have a heart attack in the next year or two. So the question is, you want to die tomorrow, or you want to have a heart attack in 40, 50 years? Because you're going to have you, you have a 100% chance of a heart attack. You are in the high, you're in a higher risk category than someone who has already had a heart attack. <laughs> like, wow. And you know, I thought, and that's the moment of clarity. And I thought, you know, the only time I never had a weight issue was when I was in LA. The only time that my weight stayed completely stable when I was absent. There was never an issue in those seven, eight years, well no, it was longer than that, that I had been in no way, 14 years of abstinence. And that was that moment. And I went, eh, I'm glad with pizza. <laughs> and for two more years I played around with it. And I ran the marathon, I lost the weight in a crazy way, and uh, so I'm like, there, I did it. And the doctor said, great, keep doing it. When are you running your next marathon? You're going to keep doing this for the rest of your life. And I thought, I can't do this. And the thought came back again. The only time I never had an issue with food. I never had an obsession with food. My weight stayed the same. Everything was away. And I'm like, I don't want to go back to these people. (laughs) I really don't. But I knew I had to. And so I went to the kitchen sink. It was, no, it was right after Thanksgiving weekend, uh, after Halloween, and I vowed not to eat any of my kids' candy like I did before. I mean, there were two. They're not going to notice. Now there were five. My son was five, and yet he would notice. So I did my best. I white-knuckled it. I stayed out of the Halloween candy. So my, you know, my accident date was, you know, Halloween. It's 2005. I went to the meeting that next Saturday, and I walk in, and I see a lot of the same people who are here today. And they were there seven years prior I see a guy and it's that same guy I sponsored in Philadelphia I had no idea he lived here and he came up to me and we started talking I go okay that's the sign I'm supposed to be here why am I running into this guy and so I got a sponsor and been coming to meetings since again 14 years of absence second time around and, and now that I have the same amount of time as I had before going out, part of me is like, yeah, you, know, you don't really need to do this as hard as you. You know, the mind starts. It's that obsession. It's always there. You know, it's like my disease is like a gas oven. So all four burners can be on and I can be in my addiction. Or I can be working a program and those burners are off, but the pilot light of addiction is always on. I have to remember that. It is always on, ready to go. Is that match? So I, that's how I have to look at my recovery today. And um, so I come back, get abstinent, work the program, do all this wonderful stuff, and you know, here I am, and I go, okay, what's next? You know, part of the thing that I got into was, you know, I'm running these marathons. And my doctor's like, yeah, you got to keep running these marathons. So. I'm getting tired of running marathons. Um, and, and they're just not fun anymore. You know, I turn 50, the, the, the times start to expand at about mile 20. I go, why the hell am I doing this? Well, you know, uh, doctor's orders. So uh, UCLA, um, the guy who was head of cardiac, 
cardiac preventative medicine at UCLA, retired, he was my doctor, brought in a new person, and she's like, oh yeah, you don't have to run those marathons. You know, that, that's too much. In fact, we've done studies that show that you know, it probably is not the best thing for your heart. Maybe half marathons. So I was like, great, nice telling. So um, I just decided it was no fun anymore. I didn't enjoy all the training. You know, 16 marathons, it was not fun. And I just said, okay, I'm done. About a year and a half ago, I said, I ran the LA Marathon. I go, that's it, it's done. And I was also using the running and the training 30 miles a week to eat a little bit more. And I could tell that. So I scaled back and, um, you know, I still run a couple times a week. I love it. But I'm running maybe 10 to 15 miles a week, not 30. And that's very doable. And I feel comfortable with that. You know, some weight came back on. And then the other thing is, you know, looking at the scale. Where's the scale? How's the scale? I'm probably three pounds heavier than I was five years ago. Okay, that's within the range. Nothing fits the same way it did five years ago. So the weight on the scale is the same, but the body shifted. You know, that's what happens when you age. So, you know, I have to look at that stuff and say, well, is it really the scale now? Is really what's on the scale? So it comes back to, am I working a spiritual program? Am I being honest? Am I being clean with my food? And one of the things I discovered was, even though I was not that far from goal weight, a little bit overweight, you know, clothes didn't quite fit and this, I had to do, I had to look at the food on the plate. What am I doing here? And so, um, you know, my trainer, who is not, he did not understand 12-step programs, but he's great in training. He said, give up the bread. You got to give up the bread. And I was like, mm, okay. And that's the one thing I'd never do is give up white flour. In all these years, it just was not negotiable. And so I talked to my sponsor and we said, okay, you know, let's go no flour, no white flour, no bread, no pasta. Let's... It's not that it can't be on your food plan, but you're not going to have it. And if you are, text me. Call me beforehand. And I was like, okay. So you can have it. He's choosing not to have it right now. And that was back in August. I, I texted him once. I was going to a dinner where they were serving pasta. There's just no way around it. Ended up he did something else, so I was fine. And um, thank you. So, and that was, so I haven't had, you know, bread or pasta since August. It's fine. It really, rarely do I notice it. And I feel a lot better. Does that mean I'm never going to have it? No. If I want to have it, I just have to text or call my sponsor and say, I'm having it. That's our agreement. And it's fine. But what it does is it takes away the obsession. I don't, I, I, I have so many things going on in my life today. There's only so much brain power and time I can devote to things. And, you know, and I also, do I want to really sit here and beat myself up? Is that really the best use of my time on this earth? Or can I be doing something a little bit more productive, not only for me, but my family and the people around me? And so, this is just one thing that I take off to keep the obsession at bay. And that's really what it's about. And I thought, oh great, I'll have some dramatic weight loss. I, I didn't lose a pound. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's cruel. Very cruel. But I feel better. You know? And it was really great for me to see that, you know, looking back in my early accidents when I lived in Paris, I didn't eat that much bread. Believe it or not, French people do not eat that much bread. They don't eat croissants. That's for the tourists. 
you know, pizza? There was one place in all of Paris where you'd get a pizza. Pasta? You don't like Italian food. So you really didn't find a lot of pasta places. I mean, I literally did not go to one place for two years in Paris that was Italian. So I was not eating in my original abstinence. I only just realized that after I put down the bread. You know, will it come back? It could. But I don't have to worry about that today. You know, for me today, it's about living life with freedom from that. And then also all the other stuff, too. You know, not only was the obsession about the weight, it's the obsession of running out of money. It's the obsession of, you know, am I going to get what I want? And how can I go, you know, or how come I get no respect at work? You know, don't they realize that I'm a productive member of the company and they should compensate me more? Or, you know, the latest thing is, you know, my practice has become very successful. Uh, Really, just things happening. Um, I have a sponsor. I also have a business coach who's like my work sponsor. Uh, He's not 12-step oriented or any of that other stuff, but, you know, I'm working to improve what I do. And he just goes, it's amazing what happens to me. He goes, these people and these things just keep showing up in your life. He goes, I've never seen anything like it. You know, he goes, it's really amazing what's happening. And I love that because he gets to remind me it's not me. It's not happening because I'm a wonderful guy. It's not happening because I'm working a great program. It's not happening because I finally get what I deserve. It's happening because that's supposed to be what's happening and I have to accept it and just go along with it. Uh, and this is supposed to be what it's supposed to be. And, you know, and some days I go and I go, well, how come I don't have the corner office? I go down to the manager. I go, hey, here's my rankings. Here's an empty office. It's corner office. Can I have it? He goes, no. I'm saving that for somebody else. And I go, where's the love here? You know. <laughs> and I go, okay. And then I don't think about it again. Because I'm like, all right, it's a nice office. I don't need to have it. Uh, and I'm, I'll hit them up for something else down the road. You know, that's the way I look at it. You know, but I don't have to think, okay, I'm disrespected, and how come I don't get, and he gets that, and they get that. Oh, this person. Oh, they didn't deserve it, and now look what they, you, you paid for that stuff over there, and what about me? Where's mine? I don't have to waste my time with that. I can get on and do what I'm supposed to do, and do a good job with it, and have fun, and enjoy it, and I love going to work every day. And it's a fun experience for me. And the people who work for me enjoy coming to work. Or at least they tell me that. And <laughs> they do. We have a fun time. I try and make it fun. I think about, would I want to work for me today? Yes, I would. Because I really treat the people I work with with how I wish I was treated. And how I want to be treated. And, and that's really, I have to think about that with everyone I deal with. In my family, you know, okay. So if I yell at my wife, yeah, am I going to get the reaction back that I want? Maybe I don't yell. You know, with my daughter negotiating a 15-year-old, a feral 15-year-old. Tough territory. Tough territory, you know? You know, people talk about relationships. How are your relationships? You know, they're always talking about, you know, the romantic relationship or your significant other. They're never asking about the 15-year-old teenage daughter relationship. Um... And if you want to know more about that, we can handle that in the Q&A. So that is my time. Thank you.
There is no sharing at this meeting. You will, if you need to share, please do so with any of us after the meeting. Also, remember that the opinions of the leaders are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Okay. Yes. Uh, thank you for your share. Yeah. Um, I wanted to know if you have any experience with uh, somebody very significant in your life that does not look at your And how do you deal with that? question is, do I have someone significant in my life that does not work a 12-step program and how do I deal with that? Yes. Um, I do have that. Um, I sometimes find that people who think they work a 12-step program who are in my life are a bigger problem. Uh, <laughs> 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 to be honest. Um, I would say, yes, I had a situation uh, in my office, and this really was a very significant relationship because it consumed a lot of my, my emotional time and energy. Um, a guy was not well. I've known him for years. And, um, and so I said, look, I don't know what's going on with you, but I basically offered to help him out and then take over his business, pay him out. He could not continue to work. And we, we worked it out. You know, what I was not aware of, he was not being honest with what's going on uh, with his health. He had Parkinson's, and I'm not familiar with that. And there's a dementia element that comes with it. And so, you know, also there was probably some abuse of medication, too, going on there. Uh, and so here was someone who's not being honest, who was acting like a drug addict, who was acting out in a lot of ways, who was working at cross purposes with me. And it was a real problem on a daily basis. Uh, and then he would go behind my back and sabotage what I was trying to do. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to help this guy out, helping myself and help him. You know, and it was to the point where I said, you know, we went down and had a meeting with the management. And I said, he's not capable of working. And let me give you three examples. A, B, C. I said, does this worry you? It worries me. And I had to be very confrontative in a loving way. And I have to say that that did not turn out wonderfully, as you could imagine. Uh, and there was a lot of retaliatory behavior. And, um, but I had to bring this up. I couldn't sit here and pretend it wasn't happening. I had to confront this person. And the fallout was not wonderful. And it was six months of hell uh, on a lot of different levels. And what I had to keep coming back to was... Hey guys, this bathroom makes uh, a lot of you go to this door, go upstairs, there is another bathroom. Perfect. Okay? Thank you. Make sure. So, uh, anyways, we could, I could still use the bathroom during that time. Uh, so, the issue there was, this was someone who was never going to get in recovery. This was someone who wasn't going to admit what was going on. This was someone who was constantly fighting with me. I, was, I had the, the moral high ground, and I had to let go of it and say, you know what, he's going to do what he's going to do. I need to focus on this. I need to focus on these other things at work, and I just have to hope that everything is going to work out. And it did work out. But, you know, I made the confrontation. I did what I was supposed to do, let management handle what they had to do. Um, interpersonally, it was kind of cold. Still is not wonderful. Um, but that's fine. Um, I'm pleasant, I'm professional, 
And for me, I didn't have to sit there and obsess about, oh, can you believe what he just did now? And, no, 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 no. and, and my life didn't have to have that brain power. I turned my focus onto what I could do. And it talks about that a lot in, in, in the literature. Let's focus on what I can do in front of me today and make a difference. Next question. Can you tell us about your relationship with your 15-year-old daughter? Yes, my 15-year-old daughter, who I... Uh, the question is, can I talk about my relationship with my 15-year-old daughter? Um, I love her to death. She's great. Um, she has an extremely, extremely strong personality, like a bulldozer. Most of the women in my family are like that, so I'm very used to that personality. My wife is not, uh, so she has a much more difficult time. Uh, does she have the personality traits of uh, an addict? No question. In fact, she sat me down yesterday and said, look, you know, stop writing the script. She goes, you don't do this much as you, my, my mother does it, she said, but um, don't write the script that I have an addictive personality. I can have an addictive personality and not get into trouble with all of this. And, okay. I'm, I, I, I'll go with that. And so with her... What I have to do with her is to realize that, one, she has her own higher power. She's going to be fine. She has incredible talent in a lot of areas. Incredible talent in so many areas. That I have to, one, model good behavior. Uh, two, be consistent. Three, be loving. Be firm. You know, for me, my niece, um, you know, at 16, she was pregnant. She'd been through eating disorder unit alcohol rehab, married a heroin addict, homeless part of the time. You know, it, so I know what's waiting for her in terms of addiction. And it worries me. I don't think that's her path, but I don't know for sure. And so what I can do is be a loving parent, be a good... Now, I haven't taken her to any OA meetings. i thought about it. I haven't taken her to any AA meetings. i thought about it. Yeah, I'm going to wait for her to ask me. And occasionally she'll ask a question or two, and I'll answer it. Um, but the best thing I can do is to be an example and be a consistent example and to be there for her and also to set up boundaries about what is acceptable, what's not acceptable. I can say, look, you get out of whack really easily. And, uh, and you know, we had her start to see a therapist. The therapist was very good. She just said, look, you have four buckets. You have an intellectual, a social, a spiritual, and a physical bucket. you got to do a couple minutes of meditation. You need to do some exercise. You need to interact with people. You need to do something with your brain and art- artistic things every single day. That's going to help you. She could hear that. That's not very different from what I would say. She could hear that. She could hear that from somewhere else. Great. You know, of course, I'm like, okay, did you do those four things today? How'd you exercise? What about this? I go, oh, yeah, what are only bags of potato chips in your room? I said, come on, what is it? It's like, ah! So I have to back off and just be um, a good example, set the boundaries, and let her live her life. And explore who she is. That's her job right now. Not easy. Thank you. Yes? She is in another 12-step program, not OA. She doesn't have any addictive substance issues, uh, luckily for her. Um, you know, for a long time I would blame her 
for my problems with food. A lot of baking goes on in my house. Uh, there's always something with sugar or chocolate being baked. And for and when I started to get abstinent again, I was just like, you better hide that stuff, please. Now I don't care. Uh, I don't say, you know, she'll do most of the grocery shopping. Now, you know what, I go, instead of saying, well, you didn't get this, you didn't get that, I need to have my stuff for my, my food and this and that and the other. And she goes, like, your, your stuff. You know, and she gets a little, it's, it's funny because I spend a lot of time, OA is a lot about prepare and execution. That's the secret of OA. I'm going to prepare. Make sure I've got my abstinent food nearby or a place I can go to get that abstinent food so when it comes time to eat, I haven't set myself up. Um, she doesn't need to do that. And I would forever say, well, you didn't get this, you didn't get that. Now, I just get it. I don't rely on whether she's going to do it or not. She is not in charge of my program. She is not the person that's going to be the barometer of whether I'm working a good program or not. So I take that responsibility off of her and put it back to me where it should be. Um, you know, and she also has had it difficult. She saw me put on 70 pounds and she's like, uh, so when's this going to stop? You're going to have another pint of ice cream? Really? You know, and she would make those comments that most people would make. Of course, I resented her for that. And so what I have to do, and then, you know, when she's working her program, I'm like, oh, really? Hmm. <laughs> That's a very interesting version of the program. Thank you. Uh, you know, and I get a little snarky about that. And I have to shut up because her program is none of my business. And how she handles things is really not a lot of my business. You know, we've had a lot of stuff with money. Surprise. Relationships, money, problems. You know, and I have to just let, you know, work out a solution with her. And it's constantly being perfected. And so what I have to come to is, the first thing I have to realize is, I'm not the prize I think I am. I'm really difficult. I'm really difficult. You've got to walk a fine line with me in terms of, well, be nice but not too nice. Be helpful but not too helpful. And, you know, I really drive people crazy. I, I see that. And I have to be aware that I'm not an easy person to live with. I don't communicate well. I'm passive-aggressive. I'm all of these things. You know, we all get up here and talk about, oh, the relationships are good. We never. And, you know, when we're telling our story. And that's what it is. It's a story. It's fiction. It's my version of my life that I'm telling you and you all are buying it. That's not, you know, I always fantasize and think, what if we thought the spouses up here? Or the children? Would we get a different story? <laughs> Yes, we would. And I think about that. I, I now, it's taken me 25 years, 30 years of a relationship, to think about that and say, oh, what's the other version of this story over here? And maybe I should take that into account before I go off and do whatever I'm going to do. Um, you know, there is this... I think the problem, and this gets a little off your question, but... We are so focused on the relationship being the answer today that we put too much pressure on that primary relationship. You know, it's like iPhones, smartphones. You know, if they only worked 50% of the time, we wouldn't use them. 
you know, but relationships, 50% of the time they don't work out, yet we're all pursuing that relationship. And even when we're in a relationship, it doesn't always work wonderfully. And, and, and yet we keep putting more and more pressure on it. And it's like, you know, and if you don't have that relationship, there's something wrong. It's like people who don't have smartphones. They're either too young, too old, can't get it together, or, you know. And it's like relationships. Oh, you don't have a relationship. Oh, well, you must be too old, young, too old, can't get it together. You know, it's like the reality of it is, is that that is not my source of happiness. You know, there's that, you know, no, you know, my sponsor's like, there's no romantic solution, there's no political solution, there's no financial solution. You know, there's a spiritual solution. So if I work on my spiritual, spiritual side of things and say, okay, can I accept what's going on? You know, um, you know, it was a big thing that when I was going bankrupt and I was living off of borrowed credit cards, uh, that was the time my wife decided to go out and buy a $2,500 designer dog. And I'm like, what are you doing? Well, the kids wanted a dog. You can return it. I go, oh, yeah. The only thing my kids will ever remember in their entire childhood is the day that dad made them return the dog. Yeah, nothing else I ever did, did for them will ever come up except the day that dad made them return the I couldn't return the dog. And for a long time, I focused on that. That, that one thing. And that became the defining issue for a long time. And the reality of it is, is that I made that decision to define that. And so I have to step back and say, okay, instead of how's my primary relationship, how am I? Am I being a good person to be in a relationship with? You know, that's how I have to turn the focus. And so it's like, well, yeah, she did do this. Call my sponsor. He's like, okay. Let me guess. He always knows. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, I was going to call you. And I, and I was going to tell you what it was, and you were going to say this. And he goes, yeah, you're right. And I go, yeah, so I didn't call you. I knew exactly what was going to happen. You know, because I have, today, after 36 years, there's like three issues. They're my, my, my emotional blind spots, my spiritual blind spots that keep coming up. Which is great. There's only a couple of them. And I know what they are. So now I'm really trying to work on it. And so I'm trying to work on it from a different aspect. Instead of fixing them or figure out, okay... How can I just put up with this and make it work? How can I become a better person in this equation? How can I become a better part in this equation? What can I do to fundamentally change what I'm doing? And that is a real focus shift. And I think that's where I see some success in every aspect of my life. I hope that answers your question. It only. And then. Thank you, Peter. Let's have your story. Um, I wanted to ask, you have this level of acceptance and I, I want to know more about uh, your spiritual journey and that's where you come or if just using programming for higher power. Okay, uh, so the question is, uh, a lot of serenity and acceptance uh, and... <laughs> How, how does spirituality work into that and how, you know, it, it, the journey, the spiritual journey has taken place? So I was raised Catholic, uh, went to Catholic school. Uh, I was, you know, significantly scarred because I went to a all-boys Catholic military high school. Uh, I always threaten my kids with that. Uh, <laughs> like, hey, yeah, my, my dean of students was a former prison warden. 
I mean, that was where I went to school. And I you know my kids, you know, they got the inclusivity, uh, uh, you know, director, and they've got this, and they're really interested in the kids' well-being. That was not the case, at least my point of view, when I went to high school. Uh, I had no issues with the Catholic Church because it was re- rebelling against the military. So that was, um, I, I, that's why I still have long hair and a beard at 55. Um, still rebelling from high school. Um, you know, and it was what it was. I had no issues. And, um, you know, I got into program and started working steps. And, um, you know, it was um, fine. I, I, you know, do meditation and I develop a spiritual program and things went along fine and uh, one day we were going to get married and so we were going to this church here and uh, we went to talk to one of the priests and he goes, well, if you want to get married here, this is Episcopal Church, you kind of have to go to the services and be involved and then I was like, I said, well, you know, I'm in a 12-step program. I'm getting a lot of higher power, a lot of program, a lot of spiritual stuff. So, that's great, but I don't really need to come to church. Please. And his response was, he goes, that's fantastic. That is great that you're doing that. But this may offer something else. Another component. So right now, between the time that you're doing this and getting married, give it a try. And if you never come back, great. But see if you can find that other component here. That's it. And so, I'll just stretch out this last thought. And so, I did. And it has been a useful component, sometimes stronger, sometimes not. What I come back to with the higher power is that through doing the steps, the twelfth step says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result... So I get one result out of working the steps. It's not abstinence. It's a spiritual experience. A spiritual recovery. It's nothing else. Nothing else is promised to me in this program except having that spiritual connection. And to me, that has probably become the most important factor in my life today. And I'd be happy to speak to you more about that since we're out of time. But... Thank you, everybody.